0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 111. Hello again, my loyal Metamorphs. Welcome to another edition of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, but for the rest of this year, we're doing a Metamore City retrospective, celebrating ten years since the start of the Metamore City podcast. I'm bringing you all new recordings of each of the stories in the Urban Legend story collection, professionally produced for the eventual audiobook. So, without further ado, let's get to this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the conclusion to my short story, Huntress. In part one, we met Morgan Drowling, our friendly neighborhood vampire. Through Morgan's eyes, we learned some of the distinguishing features of vampires in Metamore City, including their obsessive-compulsive cleanliness, the hypnotic power of their eyes, and the fact that they can be seen in mirrors, but seeing their own eyes in a reflection is terrifying for them. We also learned about Morgan's high standards in seeking a blood-sharing partner, and how she turns down many opportunities because her prospective partners either want to become vampires themselves, or want to attach themselves to her like groupies. After several hours of unsuccessfully seeking a new sharing partner, Morgan is interrupted when she hears a girl cry for help. Following the sound, Morgan sees a group of three vampires cornering the girl in a dead-end alley on the first skyway level. Morgan intervenes to stop the attack, and uses a fire wand to destroy the strongest of the three vampires. She lets the two fledglings go, telling them that they are free now, and that they must respect the vampire queen's laws against killing mortals. With the danger past, Morgan turns her attention to the girl she has just rescued. A Tale of Metamore City Written in Red By Chris Lester Part 2 I turn slowly to face her. She's sitting on the ground now, backed up against the wall, looking up at me with a mixture of confusion, wonder, and raw terror. She's still holding the crucifix in one hand, but she's not trying to wield it. Her arms are wrapped close around her body, either as a defensive gesture or to ward off the cold. Her left leg is tucked up close to her chest, the right one stretched out awkwardly in front of her. Tears are running freely down her face. She's a lovely young woman, likely in her late teens, with fair golden skin, hazel eyes and russet brown hair, but she's obviously fallen on hard times. Her clothes smell like she's been wearing them at least a week. Her hair is matted and stringy, her face is smudged with dirt, and the backpack lying next to her looks as if it might well contain all her worldly goods. I put away the stake and wand and offer her a hand. Are you all right? I ask. She flinches away from my hand and shakes her head. Is it your leg? Can you speak? Yeah. She nods toward the street, where a smashed-up bicycle is lying near the curb. They jumped me on my bike. I fell. My ankle hurts. I get down on my knees by her wounded leg. All right. I'm going to take a look at it, okay? I won't hurt you. I'm a doctor. Technically true, even though I work as the head medical examiner at the local morgue. She looks surprised, and who can blame her? You? You're a doctor, she says. Aren't you? She gestures in the direction the other two assailants had run off in. A vampire? I ask. Yes, but I've been a doctor a while longer, and I still believe in our old motto, First, do no harm. I carefully remove the girl's shoe and sock and feel gingerly around her ankle which has already turned black and blue. After asking her the time-honoured question, does this hurt, a few times, I feel fairly confident in my diagnosis. Well, it's sprained, it's bruised, and I think you might have a hairline fracture, but that's about it, I tell her. If we get it bandaged up and you're careful for a few weeks, you should be fine. Do you live nearby? She shakes her head. No, I... I don't really live anywhere anymore. She sniffles and fights back the emotion in her voice, her words coming faster and faster. I had a place, but then I got fired from the restaurant where I worked because this guy grabbed my ass and I slapped him, and then Joe says I can't go around slapping customers, and it's like he doesn't even care what the bastard was doing to me, And, and, and then he wouldn't give me my last paycheck, and the rent was due, and I couldn't find another job in time. She takes a long, shuddering gasp. And they kicked me out, and now I don't have anywhere to go. And then she can't say any more. She's just sitting there, sobbing, her face buried in her hands. I take her in my arms and hold her close in a comforting embrace. Her neck is so tantalizingly close that I can hear the blood pumping through her carotids, and for a long moment... My mothering instinct fights a fierce battle against my appetite. Mothering wins out, and I just sit there with her for a long while, rocking her back and forth, whispering, You'll be all right. You'll be all right. When she's calmed down a bit, I decide to try this again. What's your name, dear? She sniffles. Kelly. I'm Morgan. A small smile. Hey, do you have anyone you can call? Parents? Grandparents? Oh, God. Kelly moans, though her tone sounds more like weariness than actual distress. Yeah, I have a mom and dad. I ran away two years ago to become a fashion model in the city. Didn't work out, eh? Kelly makes a disgusted sound. Bastard said I was too short. I'm 176 tall and I'm too frickin' short to be a model terribly unfair, isn't it? I've had some experience with the fashion industry, and I'm about the same height, so I know she's not joking. I do know a couple of photographers who will work with shorter models, but I decide not to mention it. This girl belongs back with her family, not in the big city where somebody could make a meal of her. It's rather perverse to think that every style we consider fashionable was designed for women who are taller than most men. (laughs) Heh, yeah, Where do your parents live, Kelly? In Cardale? It's a little southeast of Meryton, along the coast. I wince. Blast. That's a bit far for me to drive, I'm afraid. Yeah, I guess the whole daylight thing would be a problem, huh? Afraid so. Do you know anyone else in this city? Not really. It was mostly just the people at the restaurant, and they won't have anything to do with me since I got fired. Sigh. All right, here's what we'll do. I'll take you to my apartment. We'll get you patched up, and then tomorrow you will call your parents and ask them to come fetch you, or buy you a ticket home, or whatever they think best. All right? She nods weakly. Okay. Um, do you have any food at home? Because I don't think I've had a decent meal in, like, three days. She frowns. But I guess you wouldn't really have food at home, would you? Unless you, like, take people home to fatten them up or something. I can tell from the laughter in her voice that she's kidding, but I can't resist. Oh, but of course. Have you any idea how much richer a person's blood gets after they eat ice cream? Dear gods, it's better than chocolate. She gives me a look like she's not sure whether to believe me or not. She carefully avoids making full eye contact, letting her gaze fall somewhere around my mouth. Relax, I say, putting my hand on her shoulder. I'm not going to fatten you up to eat you. Kelly's lips twist into a smirk. The way my stomach feels right now, it might be worth it. I know how you feel, dear. We'll stop at the grouse's and get you some food, I promise. I pick up her backpack and sling it over my own shoulders. "'Come on,' I say, helping her up. "'You can lean on me. My skimmer's one level up and not far away.' We hobble into the lift tube and ride back up to the second level. Inside the lift car, it's quiet enough that Kelly can hear my stomach rumbling. "'Yes, it still does that. Don't ask me how. I'm a doctor and I still haven't a clue.' She looks at me warily. "'Maybe we'd better get you some food while we're at it,' she suggests. I snort. I've been working on that all evening, dearie. Without success, I might add. She frowns. How hard could it be? You're, like, totally super strong and stuff. True, I agree. But I won't take from people unless they offer it willingly. And I won't change anyone else to make them like me, even if they wish it. I shrug. That cuts down the list quite a bit. She looks up at me and briefly meets my gaze, a strange expression in her eyes. It's almost as if she sees something that she couldn't before. Yeah, she says quietly. I guess it would. Once we reach my skimmer, I do some preliminary first aid work on Kelly's ankle, using the rather extensive emergency med kit I keep in the trunk. I pull out an instant ice pack, give it a firm twist to break the seal between the two compartments, and feel it go suddenly cold in my hand as the chemicals inside react with each other. I wrap the ice pack around Kelly's ankle and then tape it in place with a long bandage, which also serves to immobilize the injury. Moving the seat back, I help her into the skimmer and prop her leg up on the dashboard. I do realize it's a bit uncomfortable, but she'll thank me in the long run, I tell her. Now, let's see about getting you some food. We stop off at the supermarket as promised, and I let Kelly push the cart, leaning on the handlebar to keep the weight off her wounded ankle. I give her free rein to buy what she wants. For the most part, she's fairly sensible in her choices: two frozen dinners, a few different kinds of fruit, bread, meat and cheese for sandwiches, some condiments, milk. She also picks up a half-liter of praline fudge ice cream, giving me a furtive glance and a little smirk as she sets it in the cart. My stomach groans again, and I have to close my eyes for a moment and turn away. The hunger is becoming so strong now that I can feel it through my whole body, telling me to reach out and grab the girl, to rip out her throat in the middle of the grocery store. The scent of dried sweat clinging to her calls to me like the smell of a steak on a grill. I'll be back in a moment, I say, walking stiffly away from her, eyes still closed. Wait for me by the register. Okay, Kelly says. Are you all right? I'll be back, I promise, still not looking at her. Sweet of her to care, really, but it's her she should be worrying about, not me. I head straight over to the meat department and find the lone staff member on duty at this hour. They don't get much business from my kind, but he manages to scrounge up a liter of beef blood for me. This is even worse than what they sell at the nightclubs, but also a good deal cheaper, and I have little choice in any event. I thank him for his help and head back toward the registers, stopping in an empty aisle to gulp down four large mouthfuls of the stuff. It's chilled at least several hours old and horribly bland. Human blood is like wine, lutein' like stout beer, an elf like sweet liqueur, but beef blood is like drinking unsalted chicken broth. Still, it quiets my stomach and soothes the beast inside of me, at least for the moment. Kelly's eyes light up with understanding when she sees what I'm carrying. She nods faintly, asking, guess you were getting pretty hungry, huh? Extremely, I agree, setting the container of blood on the conveyor belt for the employee to ring up. This stuff is rather awful, but it's better than nothing. Kelly gestures at my face. You have a little in the corner of your mouth. I reach up and dab at it, my fingers coming back touched with red. Oh, forgive me, I say, pulling out a handkerchief. The store clock looks from me to Kelly to the container of blood, and back again. Cash check or credit. Kelly has worked her way through a pear, an apple, and half a cotton of milk by the time we reach my apartment. With her hunger momentarily abated, I prop up her leg on a chair and remove the ice pack. After giving it a few minutes to warm up, I take another look at the injury. All in all, it doesn't look so bad, I say at last. The ligaments should heal fairly quickly, as long as you're careful. Good to know, Kelly says, as I tape up the ankle again. Now I think I'll go and carefully take a bath, if that's all right. By all means, I say, smiling. If you need any help, just call me. Thanks, but I think I got it, she says, leaning on the walls and furniture for support, as she gets up and hobbles over toward the bathroom. Do me a favor and heat up one of those dinners for me, okay? It takes her a while, but Kelly does indeed manage to bathe and dress herself without any assistance. Most of the few clothes she has in her backpack are only marginally cleaner than the ones she was wearing, so I offer her the use of my wardrobe. I wait for her in the kitchen, nursing a cup of reheated blood with little enthusiasm, while her frozen dinner heats up in the microwave. I arrange her remaining groceries into neat rows on the counter and inside the refrigerator, polish a few smudges off of the windows, and set out a plate, bowl, napkin, and silverware at the table. She comes out of the bedroom wearing a wine-red kimono and matching slippers. Her hair is still damp, combed out and hanging loosely around her shoulders, and smells faintly of apples, thanks to the shampoo I use. She looks clean and relaxed two things I'm sure she hasn't been for some time. "'That looks good on you,' I say, smiling. "'She smiles in return, a bit shyly. "'Thanks. Feels good, too. Feels good to be clean.' She pulls her food out of the microwave, serves up two scoops of ice cream in the bowl I provided, and sits down at the side of the table nearest the bedroom door, where she can keep her eyes on me while she eats.' She meets my gaze without hesitation now, and it is I who must compel myself to keep the contact from growing too long. "'Can I ask you something?' she says a few minutes later, as she alternates between mouthfuls of ice cream and more substantive food. I nod. "'Why do you carry stakes and fire wands and stuff? I thought the vampires weren't supposed to kill other vampires.' (sighs) "'Not unless the queen commands it, no,' I sigh but I'm something of a renegade among my kind. My sire is dead. I have no master. I've made many enemies in the local community, and while I believe that the queen has no knowledge of my existence, I can't be sure that she won't some day sign my death warrant. I gesture toward my coat, hanging on its hook over by the door. The wand was a gift from concerned friends who want me to be able to protect myself if I'm ever targeted. Kelly frowns. But won't they hear that you dusted that guy and come after you? It's unlikely. The two survivors are cut off from the hierarchy, like often children. Judging from what their master said, they were turned without authorization, so there's no reason to expect anyone to come looking for them. And given their master's delusions of grandeur, he likely saw no need to tell them how to contact others in the hierarchy. She nods, slowly, as she chews on a bite of meat. Still, she says, swallowing, you took a big risk for me out there. Thank you. I glance up at her. She's looking straight at me with those serious, beautiful eyes of hers. You're welcome, I say, casting my eyes down into the cup of blood in my hands. A long silence passes as we finish our respective meals. Kelly carries her dishes over to the sink, and I straighten up the placemat on the table and push in the chair. "'It feels really good to eat again,' she says, making a tentative and rather obvious stab at conversation. "'I don't think food ever tasted so good.' "'I'm pleased that one of us enjoyed it,' I say dryly, as I put the container with the rest of the blood in the refrigerator. "'I've had about as much of this as I can stomach tonight.' "'Would you like some of my food?' Kelly asks. She's rinsing off the dishes, keeping her eyes on her hands, and there is uncertainty in her voice. I mean, I know it's not the same, but... Do you eat? People food, I mean? I smile, taking a moment to straighten up the contents of the fridge. I do, but you're right, it isn't the same. Trying to sate my hunger by eating mundane food is like a human trying to do it by drinking water. It may fill your stomach for a while, but it doesn't satisfy. Oh. She shuts off the water and dries her hands. Well, you know, she says, the words coming out slowly and carefully. If you're still hungry, I kind of got that ice cream so I could share it with you. I hear her swallow, once. You know, if you want to. Inside me, something leaps up, like a lion being offered a truckload of steaks. I close the refrigerator, straighten, and turn around in one smooth, fast motion, fixing my eyes on her. She takes half a step backward, wobbling on her bandaged leg, then holds her ground. Even though we are the same height, she suddenly looks very vulnerable and small. You don't know what you're offering, I say quietly. Her lip trembles, but she nods firmly. I think I do, she says. I'm not stupid. I don't want you to make me like you or anything. I know that it's got to be hell to live like that. I can see that in your eyes. But you saved my life. She almost laughs, but it doesn't reach her eyes, which are welling up with tears. (laughs) You don't even know me, and you did that for me. And I'm so grateful. Her voice falters for a moment as she gasps for breath. And I just want to give something back to you to say thank you. She blinks once, hard, and unties the sash of her robe, spreading it open to expose more of her neck. If you'll have me. For a moment I am torn. It is a gift offered so honestly, so selflessly, and so innocently, that I almost feel unworthy to take it. But at the same time it is such a gesture of vulnerability that to refuse it would hurt her deeply." For a moment, I am unsure what to do. But only for a moment. Then the fire inside me rises up, instinct seizes hold of me, and the huntress within drives me forward. I am woman, but I am also beast, and that hunger cannot be denied. My human will, my care for this lovely young stranger, guides and channels that primal impulse— restraining me from pouncing upon the girl and dragging her to the ground. Instead, I reach out to her gently, taking the hem of the robe in my left hand and pulling it back as I circle around to stand behind her. With my right hand, I brush her hair aside over her shoulder, exposing the soft, honeyed skin of her neck. I run my hands over it, lean close and breathe in her scent, listening to the thud of her heart the quickened, shallow breaths of her lungs. Putting my hands on her shoulders, I place a tender kiss on the side of her neck. Then, with sudden fire singing in my veins, my fangs extend, and I drive them into Kelly's flesh. Muscles contract somewhere above the roof of my mouth, pumping venom into her bloodstream. Kelly cries out, a gasp of pain that turns suddenly to moans of euphoria as the carotids rush the narcotic serum directly to her brain. Her knees buckle, and I reach down to steady her, one arm over her breasts, the other around her waist, as I hold her tightly to myself. Then the blood begins to flow, seeping out of the wounds I have made, and I put my lips to her skin and drink. There are no words adequate to describe it, my mind explodes with a wash of light and color, swirling and dancing before my eyes. Then the sharing truly begins, and I can see inside her images of her memories, her thoughts, her hopes and dreams, the way she remembers her past and how she imagines her future. Her joys, her grief, that which she loves and that she despises, what stirs her fire and chills her bones. And through it all, I feel the touch of her presence, and I know that she sees the same things inside of me. Blood is more than matter, more than plasma and hemoglobin. Blood is life, the river on which the spirit flows. And as Kelly's blood flows into me, it carries her life with it, until my soul entwines with hers. She has given a part of herself to me, and from this day forth, we are bound to each other. She stirs, reaching up to place her hands over mine, but she is weakened and dizzied by the venom and cannot even find the strength to stand. Taking her in my arms, I carry her into the other room and lay her on the bed. I lie down next to her, facing her, and for a moment I just look at her, tracing my hands over her skin. Then she opens her eyes, gazing into mine, and shrugs off her robe completely. Reaching out, she caresses my cheek, my chin, my neck. Then, running her fingers through my hair, she places her hand behind my head and draws me forward to the sight of the wound, bidding me to drink again. Take it, she says breathlessly, kissing my neck, running her hands down my exposed back, and pulling up the hem of my gown to caress the skin beneath. Take more! Take more of me! I want to be with you forever! And so she gives, and I drink, as hearts and bodies alike entwine and join as one. One soul submits to another, offering itself freely, and in so doing both are bound together. A covenant of blood that cannot be broken. Kelly leans on her crutches and adjusts her backpack on her slight shoulders, shrugging it up in an effort to redistribute the weight. She's dressed simply, in a thin pink sweater and jeans, but the outfit is accented by a white scarf she wears around her neck, hiding the scars beneath. She checks the time again, tapping her uninjured foot with nervous energy. I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, she says, biting her bottom lip. I kind of screwed things up. You'll be fine, I say, gently. It may be awkward at first, but you'll find your way. You have a family who loves you. That counts for a lot. I put a hand on her shoulder. And you have the most selfless, giving heart I have ever seen. She turns and looks straight into my eyes. I know she says quietly. A chime sounds over the loudspeakers, and a rush of air comes blasting out of the tunnel to my left, soon followed by the maglev train behind it. The long chain of white and silver cars slows to a stop, and then dozens of doors open all along its side, disgorging passengers into the huge underground terminal. Kelly gives me a small, sad smile. "'Guess it's time for me to go,' she says." I give her shoulder a gentle squeeze. You're going to do it the right way this time, right? No running away, no quick and dirty shortcuts. She grins. I promise. I draw her into an embrace, kissing her softly on the forehead. Then go follow your dreams. And when you get the chance, when it won't interfere with the important things in your life, then come by and see me again. She hugs me tightly. You are one of the important things in my life, she says. She steps back until we're looking each other in the eyes again. And I will come back and see you again. But we'll always be together. In here. She places her hand over my heart. And in here, placing it over her own. My heart may no longer pump blood through my veins. But my eyes can still cry. Right now they're filling with tears, and I feel my voice go hoarse as I say, "'Go on, Kelly.' I nod to the train behind her. "'You're going to miss your ride.' That same sad little smile again. "'Okay,' she says softly. "'Goodbye, Morgan. Goodbye, Kelly.' She turns and boards the train, taking a seat near the window. Less than a minute later, the doors close and the alarm chimes sound, warning pedestrians to stay back from the vehicle. Kelly puts her hand to the glass, looking down at me, and I reach up my hand toward her, as if our fingers could touch. Then she places her hand to her neck, smiling through her tears, and I see her lips form one word. Forever. Then the maglev engines whine, and the train is whisked away in a blur of sound and motion a rush of air following in its wake. I turn and walk to the steps that will carry me out of the terminal as a piece of my soul is carried away, and as I carry away inside me the piece of another. was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get the text version of Huntress in the Urban Legends Story Collection, available in both ebook and paperback. It's also available for purchase as a standalone ebook. The links will be in the show notes. Our featured music for this story is Carried Away by Hungry Lucy. This band has been one of my favorite finds in the world of podsafe music, and they've appeared several times on the Metamore City podcast. Their latest album is called Pulse of the Earth, and you can find all their stuff at HungryLucy.com. I don't have a weekly writing report for this week, because at the time this episode drops, I will be out of town again. I'm going back to Michigan for a few days to visit my family and friends. I'll update you all on my writing in next week's episode. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash Lester. the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is ethereus. E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2002 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.